coming to you from Scott Romine's personal Batcave. It's Guatney Unplugged, brought to you by Guatney Automotive Group. Hi, welcome to Guatney Unplugged. Scott Romine here. Hope your Saturday is going fantastic. We've got a great topic today for the show. Our guest is Reba Wingfield. She's with Wingfield and Corey, a law firm in downtown Little Rock, specializing in tax law, estate planning, and probate. Their phone number is 501-372-5990, wcfirm.net. How are you, Reba? I'm good. How are you? I am great. I was wondering, did you grow up here in Arkansas? I did, but not here in central Arkansas. I grew up in northeast Arkansas, in the rice fields. In the rice fields. Still got family there? I do have family there. I have two brothers and a sister that live up there. What, where did the interest in law come from? My great-grandfather was an attorney, and he was my hero when I was growing up, or when I was really small. He died when I was about seven or eight, but um, I wanted to be like Grandpa. Well, sure. And uh, we, we spent a lot of time at his house just hanging with him, and he would tell us stories, and, and then he had all these old law books, and we played with those when we were children, and he had a, a notary seal. That was, ah. And he had left a bunch of legal pads that had gotten really brittle with age. We would take that notary seal and we would punch out <laughs> coins with them. And, uh, we, we played with that. And my goal from that early, early period in my life was to become an attorney. Of course, you go through school and you forget about that. But when I got out of high school, I was looking at going into college and working. My first job was a secretary for a law firm. So it just clicked, and I remembered my thoughts back then, and that just became a goal. Do you remember any notable cases your your grandfather would talk about or mention or funny instances in court or things like that? I'm sure he did. He actually practiced way back in the early 1900s. And um, my grandmother, his daughter, ran a little grocery store, and she ran it through the Depression, and she gave credit to a lot of the little share farm, sharecroppers that lived around her, and she just about went broke. She was just about bankrupt when the Depression was starting to come, right, starting to, to pass, and my grandfather traveled all over the country collecting those debts for her. And he, you know, back then you didn't have a vehicle. You just rode a, a mule or took a wagon or something. And he he did. He went all over the country and collected that, and he kept her from having to go bankrupt because of it. Unbelievable. Where did you end up going to school at? I started out going to college at ASU, and then I transferred down here because I knew I was going to law school after I got out. And... I finished up at UALR and then went on into law school at Bowen School of Law. Is the bar as difficult as everyone says? It's not a measure of your intelligence. It's a measure of your ability to take tests. And it's it's not uh, testing you to see if you learned what you were supposed to in law school. It's more of an elimination process. If you can get through that initiation process, then you got your ticket and you practice. So it was scary, and we studied a whole lot. 
was it difficult? I don't think it was really difficult, <laughs> but it just, it's just the luck of the draw. It, it's just, it, it's not really a measure of how much do you know. It's, did you do it right to fulfill the requirements at that particular time, which change from test to test to test. So, Is it a multiple choice test or is it where you're writing answers to? It's a combination of ah. multiple choice and uh, essay. So yeah, part of it was essay and I can't remember. It seems like we had two or three days. I can't remember. One of them was the multiple choice, and then the rest of it was the essay. So the bar test is not one day. Oh, no. I no, didn't know no. that. No, it's it's an ordeal. So looking on your website and whatnot, you are licensed in two different states to practice. Where did the thought from that come from or the need? When we started our practice here, we did a whole lot of tax resolution work where we represented debtors in front of the IRS and we took them to whatever court uh, it required, uh, their circumstances required. To expand that, we expanded over into Tennessee and we, for a short uh, time, we had an office located in Memphis. So my partner and I are both licensed in Tennessee and in Arkansas. So I guess there's tests associated if you wanted to go get certified in another state you qualify for that not really not really um a lot of states have reciprocity you have to have practiced so many years uh licensed under one state with which that state has reciprocity and then go through the application process and they'll license you i got you you have i know been associated with some pretty impressive cases there is a frame out in your lobby. Could you tell us the background of, of that? That was a, a case that was filed in a bankruptcy court. Uh, we had a tax debtor. He had gotten into some tax shelters, and the IRS was trying to collect that tax. Well, he had been dealing with it since 1981, and it was through a LLC, a partnership, and and that was uh, being litigated in front of the U.S. tax court. And in the meantime, they came in and they made him go ahead and pay this tax on this. And then later, when they finally finished this uh, tax court case that was dealing with the LLC that issued the tax shelter, then they came back and they wanted to reassess him. And we, we filed a bankruptcy for him, and we filed an adversary proceeding, which is litigation inside the bankruptcy. And we, our position was that he had already paid the tax, and they had taken the position at the time he paid the tax that he was paid in full. Then they came back, and they wanted to revisit it. So we revisited it with them, and we, we went up against the Department of Justice, and basically we kicked some serious butt. <laughs> and because of that, the judge allowed us attorney's fees against the IRS. And what you see down in my lobby is a copy of that check where they issued me, and I think it was a $166,000 check. From the IRS. From the IRS where they had to pay my attorney's fees because they took an unreasonable position on that. This sounds like so unheard of. It was fun. 
<laughs> it was fun. I mean, I would think beating the government would be the hardest cases to take on. It's not for the lighthearted. Um, and you have to have spent an awful lot of time dealing with the IRS and their internal procedures and their internal appeals and understand what they can do and what they can't do. Because if you don't understand, they're going to do what they want to do, not particularly what they can do. I gotcha. So you, you sort of have to hold their toes to the fire and they're very, um, they're very difficult to go against, especially when you wind up with the Department of Justice. Now, we've, when you deal with the U.S. Tax Court, that's one of the most friendly forums that I've dealt with. And the reason for that is because that's a traveling circuit. The judges used to physically come here, but after COVID, we do most of it through Zoom meetings now. Really? But you don't have judges here. We get a judge for one week out of the year, and all of our tax court cases have to be heard then. So the judges force a lot of settlement of those. So tax court is a really good forum for a taxpayer who has liability. If you've got any argument at all in your favor, you can generally win there or the courts force a settlement because they don't have time to hear all the cases that are filed. It's hard to, I imagine, get in court for a traffic ticket with the courts being open all year. And you've got one week? One week. So they force settlement in about 80% of the cases. I could see that. You go to school for, for law and then you take the bar. I guess you could practice in any area of law at that point if you wanted. What kind of you know, steered you towards the tax stuff and the, and the trust things and that sort of thing? The whole time that I was going to college and going, well, even in law school, I, I had to work. Okay. Uh, so you worked your way I, through I supported there. supported myself, and I, I put myself through college, and I worked at a law firm. Well, most of the work that I did dealt with tax law and some with bankruptcy law. And you are, you know, you gravitate toward what you know. And when I went into law school, I knew that I was going to kind of specialize in a tax area, but I wasn't particularly thinking about representing tax debtors. I was thinking about the traditional tax law, the estate plan, the probate, the, the trust administration, uh, corporate organization, that type of thing. And I do that, but I also, I went to work for a guy named Neil Dininger, who is who was my partner for a long, long time. Uh, we're no longer partners, but we are still good friends. We're still in contact. And in fact, we own our building together. But Neil, he loved dealing with this tax controversy. Mm -hmm. And that's where he wanted me to, you know, start learning. And under him, I did learn it. And you know, I clerked for him while I was in law school. So by the time I got out, I already knew that's where I was going. I took every tax case, I mean, every tax class that I could get my hands on while I was in law school. But I did not go for the LLM, which is the master's in law. And I didn't go for a CPA, although my, my undergrad is in business. I, I did not pursue a CPA. 
It sounds extremely specialized where I think the average person will think, well, my accountant can handle that. This is far beyond your accountant. Accountants don't go to court. Uh, gotcha. They can't represent you in tax court. They can't represent you in bankruptcy court. They can't represent you in U.S. district court. So you got to have an attorney to do that. And, and it is. It's highly specialized work. And you don't have to represent serial killers and all of, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. Criminal law was not what your thing. Why wasn't going to be your deal? It was not going to be my deal. Yeah. So we want to talk today a little bit about wills, and a lot of people, I would think, assume if they sit down and write a will that everything they need to do to prepare for not being with us is done. That is just not the case, correct? That's not the case. You need to continually think about it. Look at a will, look at an estate plan like a life plan. Um, If you sit down and you are going to organize a new entity, a corporation, and you go to the bank and you want a loan, they want to know what your business plan is. Okay, look at this estate plan as similar to a business plan, but this is for your life. You, You plan to work, you plan to accumulate, you plan to retire at some point, hopefully, and you got to fund that, but you also plan on a family and passing all your assets down. You need to know how that's going to work, what's going to happen when you pass away. Is that going to be tied up in court for years? Is that going to be something that you need? Do you have a a child with special needs that needs Mm -hmm. a trust to take care of that? Somebody overseeing that so that they are entitled to the benefits from the government that they're that that are available like um ssi or whatever but and you don't want to disqualify them for those programs by inheritance but you also don't want them to have control of their assets once they do inherit. so you put that into a special needs trust with terms that says the trustee can't distribute in any manner that would cause them a decrease in government benefits. And if you um, if you have a child who is not very adept handling money, sure, uh, you might want to put a trustee in charge of that and let them have an income with the balance to come out to their children. You have to look at what are your life circumstances. And as you get older, as your children get older and their needs mature, you can shape this to facilitate not only your needs, but those of your children. How often do you see the nightmare scenario where this wasn't handled and these kids have the expectation of, you know, all the stuff they're going to inherit and it doesn't happen at all? I had a a client come to me, uh, this has been maybe 15, 20 years ago. He wanted to do a will. He had, he was divorced. He had one child, and that child was, he was little. He was five or six, mm-hmm. or maybe a little bit older. And he had a lot of businesses, and they were worth a lot of money. And he had no will. He had nothing. And he wanted me to set up a trust so that this child would be taken care of. And the child's mother 
would not have any influence over what happened. Uh, so he put it off and he put it off and he put it off. And one day he fell dead mm. and he hadn't done anything. He had no will. He had a 10 year old son and he had an ex-wife who was not capable of handling this. Plus he had already done a divorce settlement with her and he didn't want her to have it. So we, we went to probate court for that 10 year old son. Sure. Uh, we had his, the decedent's mother was still alive and she'd worked in the businesses with him. There were like five different businesses. One of them was a hotel. Oh, wow. It was a, a pawn shop, very active, very busy businesses and a lot of assets. We stayed in probate court for about three years on that. And we wound up distributing this out into a trust for the minor child. But when somebody's a minor, they don't have the ability to come in and object what you're doing. But once they reach majority age, age 18, sure, they have three years to come in and object what you say. But we worked with that minor, with that minor's court-appointed attorney to get that trust set up to take care of him. And we were able to spin that off. And um, I, I believe he's like, 18 or 19 now. So. I guess it was at least helpful that you had spoken to the father about wishes. It was, and we were we were pretty familiar with the assets that he had. Uh, the, uh, the attorney that he had worked with was a good friend of his, was the one who referred him to me. And he, act, he was going to act as the trustee of his trust, he did, he did come in and act as the the personal representative of the estate. We got him appointed. He was also appointed trustee of the trust uh, that we set up for this child. And for 10 years, we worked on that and, and got that, you know, through probate. We got those assets and everything that could have happened in an estate happened in that. We had, we had a, a building. Uh, it was a restaurant. It was leased out to a restaurant. And it burned. And that oh, happened gosh. almost uh, within two or three months of the client passing away. And we had to collect on that. Then we had to Ugh. clean that up and turn around, sell that lot. We liquidated a lot of, uh, we had a lot of commercial real estate. We liquidated a lot of that. We collected on that that insurance claim. We And how much easier this all would have been. If he had just done it when he's first coming to see you. Yeah. So things that can go wrong are going to go wrong. Uh, Things unforeseen are going to happen. Murphy's Law, that's not a myth, let me tell you. It's not. (laughs) It is a Uh, real thing, isn't it? The biggest thing that you, you face is your heirs fighting over your state. That's unfortunate. Yeah, it happens. It happens all the time. Uh, I worked on an estate and I was actually working in the capacity of an expert witness on this one where, uh, a guy had uh, a lot of assets. He had, um, it, it was a large estate. It was a taxable estate. And he he was married for the second time. He had two children out of the first marriage. He had two children out of the second marriage. 
the wife out of the second marriage was not real good with money, so he kept everything in a trust, and he, he did everything that he was supposed to. He set up the trust. He got everything transferred like it was supposed to. He had uh, kind of oversight methods in place to make sure that his wife got what she needed, but that she wasn't able to spend it all. So he also included in that, in those documents, what we call an interorum clause, which is a no contest clause. And the wife came in and she fought it. She filed five or six different lawsuits and we were able to go in I wasn't the attorney doing the litigation, but I was the one doing all the research. And we got her declared to be in violation of this interim clause, and she was ruled that she couldn't inherit anything under it. So wow, those are, they're not fun because human emotions are involved, but they're interesting. And you see all sides of human nature, but you get to do a whole lot of research into things like, okay, if she doesn't inherit, does that disqualify the marital deduction you get on this taxable estate? And we had to go research that and figure out how to make that work. And we were able to get all that. There's a lot to it. There is a lot to it, but there's a lot of interesting things out there, but there's a lot of pitfalls. So you need to think about your particular circumstances who you've got, what the personalities are involved. If you have blended families, if you're on a second marriage and both of you mm-hmm. have children, the, the blended families are more likely to fight than the ones who are, you know, both sure. mom and dad are in common. But also it's the spouses of the children, the in-laws. Those are the ones who create a lot of problems also. Uh, you get somebody that didn't grow up together, somebody that doesn't have that family bond that comes from growing up together, they're going to fight more often. But then a lot of times, it doesn't matter how close you are, they're going to fight. I've had families. <laughs> it's like a reality that, show. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, I've had families who grew up together were very, very close and then when they're grown and their parents are gone and that estate passes down, they fight like people who never knew each other before. And it's just sad. It, it is sad, but there are steps that you can take to kind of minimize that. And the interorum clause it puts a big damper on the the motivation to get out there and contest that estate. Because you could not get anything. You could wind up with nothing. Yes. Yeah. So if someone comes to you and your website is wcfirm.net and they go and they get the trust, is the will still something that needs to be done? And how is that different? What does that handle that the trust does not handle? Life keeps going on. Uh, You do this, this trust, you hopefully get everything transferred A lot of people forget about certain things. Oh, there was an account over there that I forgot to get transferred. Mm -hmm. There was, uh, oh, there's some stock that I held that I bought way back there, and I forgot to entitle it in the name of the trust. You try to get everything transferred, but you miss some. Also, you continue to live. You continue to acquire stuff. You want to downsize your house. You sell it. You forget to put the new one in the in the name the of trust. the trust. So what you do is you do this will 
that says, okay, if I missed anything getting it titled in the name of the trust, move it over to the trust and administer it according to the trust terms. We call it a pour over will. So it's, it's a cleanup document. So yes, it's very important that you have a will that says in the event I miss something. And one of the big things that always gets missed are mineral rights. You've got, ah. you've got gas royalties coming in mm-hmm. and those are difficult to get transferred. Uh, they're difficult. You, not only do you have to do a deed transferring it, you have to go to the company who is doing the pumping and controls the wells and issues the royalty checks to get it changed on their book. Who would even think of something like that? I've always heard that a will, it's very important that it's handwritten in the person's right. Is that true? You can't type your will out. You, you, you should write it. No, that's not exactly true. You, you can type your will but if you type your will, you have to have a very specific type of witness oh, uh, really? to the will. If, if you handwrite your will, that is acceptable. If it's 100% in your handwriting and you sign it, then that is considered a valid will, even without witnesses. But the traditional method is to have the two witnesses who are disinterested parties, and then you have... Uh, a notary come in and notarize their signature. Is a trust something that is for an individual or is there such thing as a, Hey, we're married. My wife and I made this trust together. Most of my married people, I advise them to do a joint trust. And under that joint trust, there's joint administration, but inside it, you, you separate it into two separate trust shares. You got trust share a for, the husband trust share B for the wife, and they are administered in individually. They they can have individual terms. They can have different trustees. They can come out to different persons, but it makes it easy to administer it, especially during their lifetime. If it's a joint trust and you only have to do one amendment instead of two amendments, and um, it's just a matter of creating divisions inside that trust. I always hear these stories about, you know, so-and-so went in a nursing home and they could only have so much property or whatever. And then when they pass away, the family doesn't get any of that. I guess the government now has that property. Does a trust help avoid that? Or do you do something legally to help avoid that type of a situation? A lot of used to, there was not a method to pass any of that down. If if you went into a nursing home in order to qualify for Medicaid, uh, you either self-pay the cost or your estate is liquidated and that's used. If you have, uh, you're limited on the, uh, the resources that you can have. You can exempt your residence. You can exempt your automobile. You can exempt up to, and I think it's, 20 something hundred dollars per month uh, in resources. I got you. You can have um, income come through that's over the 2200 and that will disqualify you for Medicaid for that month. Then the next month you start all over. And if you accumulate resources, say you've got 2100 coming in and you save five of it, and then the next month, you're over that, and then you start to accumulate. You've got resources in excess of that limitation amount. 
then you're disqualified until you no longer have those resources. But now there's there's a different method for doing that. It's called a spin-down plan. And that is, that's a very strict formula. I don't do it myself. I use mm-hmm. an insurance company who does it. And they will give you a spin-down plan, which passes over half of your state down to your, your heirs. And then you're penalized for passing that down. You're penalized in a in months for which you're disqualified from Medicaid. And you take the rest of what you didn't pass down and you purchase a Medicaid-compliant annuity, which supplements your income during those months that you're disqualified. And at the end of that period, you're automatically qualified and you've passed down the bulk of your estate to your heirs. And this is something that DHS, who reviews the Medicaid applications, they automatically accept these spin-down plans. If you haven't handled this, it's something everybody needs, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even if you, uh, especially if you don't have direct heirs, you need to put something in writing that says where you want your assets to go. You know, you did this for my dad, and it was just so great working with you guys. And I was curious about the thing, and people might not think about this, but when we did the trust, it seems like you recommended that things like vehicles are handled in another way. Can can you explain that? A lot of times, things that you're going to use a lot, go through, maybe replace a lot, uh, bank accounts. Generally, we don't title those in the name of the trust. We may make them payable on death to the trust, but we utilize other methods for passing that down rather than titling it in the name of the trust. With vehicles, it's a very easy thing to go to DMV and get an affidavit of inheritance, and that will transfer the title. So something that you can easily handle another way without going through probate, the whole purpose of these revocable trusts are to avoid the probate proceeding, which is very long and very expensive in Arkansas. So you can avoid that altogether if you've got this trust and you things in place? Yes. Uh, sometimes if, if you don't have a lot of assets, say you've got your homestead and you've got your vehicle and you've got your bank accounts, we don't even do a trust. We'll use a beneficiary deed on the house. We'll use the affidavit of inheritance on the vehicles and we'll do payable on death designations on your, your bank account. So we do what is, we, we fashion these estate plans according to your specific circumstances. If you have a lot and you need a trust and you're going to have money flowing through, you've got businesses or investments that are going to spin off a lot of money that needs to be managed, probably needs to go through a trust. If it's just a house or just a a piece of farmland or something that that's all you've got and you just want to pass it down and you really don't want a lot of bother, we can do that through a beneficiary deed. We can we can tailor all of these estate plans for your specific circumstances and what works best for you, your children, your, your estate. And it's different from person to person. I'm, I'm curious, Reba, like say you're named the trustee. How often do you get into 
giving some legal advice that trace trustee say that the person passes away they were named the trustee i've got this big looks like a book this trust okay what do i do where do i start How, do you get into that because not everybody's going to be familiar with what they're Most supposed to do aren't, unless no. you name an attorney who is a trust attorney but trust administration is part of this whole probate thing um Usually what happens is, okay, parents have passed away and you've been named the trustee. What do I do? Exactly. Go to the attorney who set it up. And if if you don't like that attorney, you go to any attorney, really, who's got uh, a practice in trust administration. And they're going to be able to guide you and tell you what needs to be done and what, what can't be done. The statutes are pretty specific on what you can invest in how you can pass things down. Also, powers are granted under the trust document itself. So in order to take a step, you need to have the authority to do that, either through statute or something that's granted specifically under the trust document. I would think a trust has a bank account. Is that typical, or is it the, the bank account of the person that's passed away? All of that is going to turn in based on the circumstances of that individual who passed away. Um, if there are no funds coming in and going out, then what's the point in having a bank account? But most of them are going to have some sort of investment account. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we take an investment account and then we have a bank account to do things like to pay expenses, to to pay a CPA to do a tax return, to uh, take the income and, and then maybe pass it out to the heirs. So usually there is a bank account, but it again, it depends on what are your specific circumstances. Someone comes to you and they want to trust. What kind of a timeline does it take you to generate a, a, a trust? And, and Mike, could you give us an idea of some kind of cost? I'm sure that's probably all over the place. I, I'm sure that that's the first thing that everybody thinks about. Usually an estate plan runs somewhere around $3,000. We don't do a flat rate most of the time. We do, we bill by the hour because we're not sure exactly where you're going to go, what you're going to need, and you may need much less than a full estate plan. Um, so $3,000, give or take a little either side. Uh, with regard to timing, you come in and usually the first couple of sessions with the client are just educational. We educate the client on what is available and how all this works and what it is you're trying to avoid by avoiding uh, probate. And then we talk about what are their specific circumstances, how do they want their property to pass, and then we come up with a method and a proposal on how to handle all that. And then once the client says yes, we put that in place, we help them make all the transfers, we help them go back to things like 401ks or IRAs and do uh, designations to beneficiaries. Uh, we help them with life insurance and making sure that the desig the beneficiary designation on those are done the way they want them done. Then we get everything else over into the trust and we get the, everything titled the way it needs to be titled. And your phone number is 501-372-5990. The website is wcfirm.net. Uh, Wingfield and Corey, they're in downtown Little Rock down here. I did want to ask you about something. On your website, it says that you have 
spent time working with the Civil Air Patrol. I got to wonder if you're a pilot or, or where did that come from? My husband was a pilot. Oh, really? Okay. My husband joined and he wanted me to join with him. And we did this following Katrina because we'd seen all the activity oh, that yeah. the Civil Air Patrol had following Katrina. So he joined and he actually became the squadron commander for the Little Rock Squadron. And then once I joined, the wing uh, finance officer said, I need you. I want you to be the finance <laughs> officer to succeed me. So I have been the finance officer at Civil Air Patrol, the Arkansas wing, for since October of 2006. For those that don't know, can you explain a little about what the Civil Air Patrol does? I know they get kids interested in flying because I've seen them at air, air shows. They have a huge cadet uh like recruiting or, or they, they do a lot of the the squadrons are composite they have senior members and they have cadets but they focus mostly on the cadet program and they bring them in get them interested in aerospace uh, uh aerospace education is a big component they prepare them through the military format to go maybe into the the air force academy out in colorado springs uh we've had several cadets come out of our wing that have made it through the air force academy and come out and they're you know they're flying jets um we also do a lot of stuff locally like um, we assist with disasters uh when there is uh flooding Uh. We, we generally fly the governor's staff around to take photos or to, you know, to see what the flooding is and where it is and, and the areas that are, that need some help and, and to declare as a disaster area. We, we are prepared for earthquake disasters. We also uh, look for downed aircraft. We do mm. search and rescue on that. We have missions where, okay, there's an aircraft that didn't re- didn't land when it's supposed mm-hmm. to land. Where is it? We've not heard from them. We go back and we trace the route they went and the possible scenarios that could have gone wrong. Where are they? We've we've had some some pretty I would think missing persons maybe you could be up looking, you know, a kid the kids missing or lost uh, and also our patient wanders off. We ah. use infrared cameras to search for them. We have ground teams who help search for them. Uh, it, it's just very interesting and very rewarding to the volunteers who come in and work with Civil Air Patrol. How often did you fly at the height of doing all this? I'm not a big fan of flying. You're not. <laughs> but in order to qualify for the other positions, you have to be rated as uh, a mission scanner. And that means you're in the back seat and you're taking the photos, you're looking for the downed aircraft, you're taking pictures of the flooding or the the tornado damage or whatever disaster it is you're dealing with or you're you're using the infrared cameras to look for somebody who's wandered off or a lost child and then there's the uh the person in the right seat who ordinarily is a pilot but with cap you're running the radios so you you learn the the communications and uh, you have to do that in order to qualify for these other positions. So yes, I had to qualify had to as it. a as a mission scanner and a 
the comm had to qualify for that. I, I worked as a liaison officer at the the missions where we were doing the search and rescue and just I, I probably didn't fly a whole lot. I would say a dozen times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like to fly. So uh, you're not, you haven't been the top gun yet. I don't want to be the top gun. <laughs> I, I, I get motion sickness. I don't even like, my my husband was a pilot. And he owned a small sure. for a long time. And he liked me to go up with him. I would go. I, I did not enjoy it. I don't even enjoy <laughs> flying commercials. So. Wow. Well, and, you're just out. Yeah. But I do enjoy working with the Civil Air Patrol and, you know, I have a background in um, accounting and tax and I'm pretty well suited for the finance officer position and I've held that for 16 years now. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Reba, for being on the show. She's with uh, Wingfield and Corey. They're downtown Little Rock here. Their phone number is 501-372-5990. Give them a call and let's get your trust set up. Everybody needs to do it get it handled they do thank you so much for being on we'll see you guys next saturday on guatney unplugged